Turn with me to Romans, Romans chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 18. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let me pray. Lord, we, we have need of you as we get into your word. We need you to turn the lights on in our dark minds so that we see the truth of your word, so that we see um, the God whom your word reflects, so that we understand the kind of father that we have privilege, the gift, the blessing of being adopted as your children so that we'd understand that, so that we would see what it means to suffer in this present time and how it is not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. And Lord, so that we would understand that in our weakness, in our inability to pray for what we ought to pray for, your spirit helps us, intercedes for us according to your will so that we are guaranteed, we are guaranteed that your good purpose will be done in our lives. We're guaranteed that all things are working together for good. For those who love God are called according to his purpose. Lord, we are guaranteed that your purpose will be accomplished, that we will be made like unto Christ, and that he, as a result, will be seen as preeminent. That he will have the supremacy. And Lord, that it is such a guarantee that you can speak of us not only as justified, Paul can speak of us not only as justified, but as glorified, as already having glory. Lord, we are thankful for that. We pray that we would understand your word properly, that we would love it, we'd repent before it, we'd rejoice over it. Lord, that it would turn us to you and we would worship. In Jesus' name, amen. When I'm in suffering, 
When I'm in suffering, I don't need to know why. I just need to know God. Job, one of the earliest followers of the Lord in the Bible, in fact in history, never knew why God took his ten children. Never knew why his health was wrecked for a time. Why his wealth was completely wiped out. And yet he worshipped. He worshipped. Knowing, knowing that if we received good, this is his prayer, if I received good from the Lord, why should I not also receive, why should I not also receive disaster? I don't need to have different circumstances. I don't need to have different circumstances. I just need to have God. When everything was going well for Asaph's enemies and life for Asaph was falling apart, he worshipped and he said, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God is enough. My father is enough for me. Having a father who according to his own eternally and infinitely wise and holy counsel decreed to create me and sustain me and save me and sanctify me and glorify me. A father who sent his son to die for me. A father who lovingly purposed to adopt me and be for me whose love is invincible is enough for me. Jesus is enough for me. Having a Lord and Savior who would descend from glory to to live under the law for me and to be crushed for my sins and to resurrect from the dead so that I would be justified and adopted and a co-heir with him of all things and who would intercede continually for me at the right hand of the Father so that I would be kept by the Father for my inheritance, that is God, is enough for me. The Holy Spirit is enough for me. Having a comforter and an advocate who gave me new life, who indwells me, and empowers me for godly living, who illumines my mind to understand the word of God he inspired, and who guarantees my inheritance with the Son, my inheritance that is God himself, is enough for me. God is enough for me, and I, I will worship him. Though he slay me, In him will I trust. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Look, what I'm saying is not just some platitude for Christians who are doing well to put on bumper stickers or to paint around their kitchen ceiling. This is the hardest saying that you will ever utter from your mouth the hardest saying you will ever, ever utter from your mouth, God is enough for me. 
Oh, certainly. It is easy, easy enough to mouth the words, to form them, and to say them. However, it is really when you are, only really when you are suffering, when God has blessed you with the severe mercy of ripping everything away from you, when you suffer from severe depression, when your children are dying, when your career has been demolished, when your spouse has left you, when your financial portfolio is a wreck, when you get a call from the doctor saying you have cancer and it's terminal, or when you've been raped or molested, when you're wondering how you can possibly endure one more moment like this, and yet at the same time know that this moment may continue to be another moment just like this for the rest of your life and may never relent, it is then, it is then that you know how difficult it is to say, God is enough. For me. His grace is sufficient for me. As a pastor, I have had the privilege of receiving this severe mercy the last several weeks. My wife has suffered greatly, and I have suffered along with her. I've cried out to God. I cried out to God with many tears as I watched her suffer in my care. I cried out to God as I collapsed on the front lawn of the hospital where I had to leave her. I cried out to God in my office as I laid, knelt over, just bent over across a chair, weeping. I cried out to God. I asked him, where are you, Father? Have you forgotten to be gracious to me? Have you forsaken me? Where are you? What have I done? Are you going to answer me? Will you heal my wife? Are you going to leave me in this condition? Have you forgotten to be good to me? And he replied, he replied, my grace is sufficient for you. I am enough for you. And let me be totally honest. This truth comforted me on some days. And it didn't comfort me in the sense that it removed the pain. It just didn't. But on some days, this truth did not comfort me. I became angry. And I, I'm going to be just straight out with you here. I cursed God in my anger. I cursed him. As recently as Friday morning, I cursed God in my anger. And I was devastated by it. I sinned greatly as I told him of my displeasure with him. Greatly. I despaired that I had finally done it. I had finally been exposed as the sinner that I am and as someone who is incapable of ever leading a church. How can I preach your word Sunday morning when Friday morning I am cursing you? And my father said to me through my brother, Jason, repent and know that his grace is sufficient for you. 
I am enough for you. Jesus is enough for you. The Holy Spirit is enough for you. Look, I don't know why we've suffered this way. But this I know. God is enough for me. Sadly, we as Christians have way too low a view of our God. Way too low a view of our God. He's become a cosmic Santa Claus, a dumb dad up in heaven who somehow exists to just give us everything we want every time we call on him. He's some kind of sky fairy that exists to serve our desires. He's basically been turned into a being who provides us with good morals and a therapist who helps us when we fail to uphold our end of the good morals. To help us feel better about it, right? And pastors in America, and I include myself in this at times, pastors in America have trivialized him with our utterly ridiculous and irreverent game playing during corporate worship and our handling of his holy word so that we can attract more consumers of religion. We have made the church into a whore whose consumerism exalts our talent, creativity, and humor and ability to draw people for the growth of our institution for our glory rather than an event where we employ all those gifts God has given for the exaltation of his infinitely and eternally holy Father as our institution grows through repentance and faith of unbelievers who see their desperate need of him, who come to this service where we worship him and exalt him and where we recognize we are brokenhearted and we love one another in the midst of it, saying God is enough for you, his grace is sufficient for you, and their hearts are laid bare and they see their sin and they say truly God is among you. But lest I place the whole blame at the feet of pastors, let me say to those of you who are parishioners out there that some of you have helped make her a whore by treating her like she exists to serve your consumeristic desires. Some of you are like Goldilocks. This church is too big. This church is too small. This church doesn't have enough programs. This church doesn't have exactly the right music. This church is just right, at least until the next better thing comes along. When what people should be asking is, does this church preach the word of the Holy Father? Does it preach the gospel of Jesus Christ? Does it, does it represent a body of people indwelt by and filled with and dependent on the Holy Spirit? Is it a place where God's people are gathered to worship? See, in this malaise of pop culture consumerism, the church has begun selling a God, selling a Jesus, selling a gospel that in its essence is about making you feel good and giving you great principles to live by. And this whole teaching is utterly bankrupt when you are confronted with terrible suffering. It is utterly bankrupt, this whole Christian subculture tossing around its meaningless platitudes in order to sell you some kind of Jesus junk or Jesus is my girlfriend songs on the radio. And it's utterly bankrupt 
when you are confronted with the reality that your God is good and that part of his purpose for you is to suffer and to hope in him while you do. What people need to hear from the church is who God is. They need to hear about the holy, sovereign, and invincibly loving Father who has purposed from eternity past to be for his people and who cannot be thwarted in accomplishing his purpose. Look at all the evil in the world. Look what people are going through. You, you see relational suffering, don't you? Relationships are being torn apart. Marriages are ending. Children are being ripped from their homes. We have an emerging collapse of the institution of marriage as it's been redefined as a contract of convenience between two parties as long as both parties are both happy rather than a covenant between a man and a woman and their God for better or for worse till death do us part. And as a result we see the growth of the great plague of divorce in our country since Ronald Reagan incidentally signed into law in California the first in America no-fault divorce law. A decision he later regretted is possibly his worst. As a result of this condition, our society and our hearts, our society and our hearts, many Christians have been divorced. You know that? Many Christians have had their families torn apart. And when Christians are in the process of divorce, when they've been divorced, they wonder if God has abandoned them, don't they? Why has God left me to suffer this terrible process of divorce? Why would God ever want to have anything to do with me after my sin in this marriage? God can never really redeem all this mess I've made. And Satan and a chorus of others join into these accusations and reaffirm that you are correct, to which your, heaven and fa your Father in heaven says, I am working for your good even in this. I have not abandoned you. I love you. I know your weakness and your pain and your suffering and your sin and I'm working even there. No one and nothing, no one and nothing, not even divorce, whatever the cause, can separate you from my love. For there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. About social injustice, over 50 million babies murdered at the hands of their moms and dad since 1973. Homosexual marriage on the rise. <clears throat> the growing persecution of Christians and their freedom of speech. The harming of children. The raping of women, etc., etc. And we wonder, where's God in all this? I just heard of a local, you know, I just heard of a local male politician who threatened the job of a woman I know. Threatened her job. And this same guy has threatened other jobs of friends I have. Tried to get them fired, in some cases has accomplished it. And when I heard, honestly, when I heard it, I wanted to go to his office and beat him down. Right? And the Lord said, vengeance is mine. I will repay you know what, but what can I tell them? What can I tell them? They can't really fight back. Severe injustice has come their way, and I must tell them the truth. You know what the truth is? 
Your father is not surprised by this. He intends even this injustice for your good. This doesn't mean you will ever see justice this side of heaven, but it does mean he's working for your good. Physical suffering. God will not necessarily heal you. Did you know that? God's good for you may include the pain and suffering of your physical condition for the rest of your life. Which is why, which is why it is so utterly offensive and disgusting and hateful for health and wealth preachers to tell you if you had enough faith, you would be healed. If you had enough faith, your pain would subside. You would be healthy. Your son or your daughter won't die. As if they are standing at the foot of the cross, saying to the Messiah who is suffering, the perfect Holy One, come down from the cross. Have enough faith. And they miss, they miss the point of the Christian life. He suffered, and that was the path to glory. And we will suffer, and that is our path to glory with him as well. And I want to exclaim to them, that is not the promise. You pernicious and evil liar. Go back to the pit of hell from which you came, you snake. God's promise is the greatest good you can ever imagine. His promise is to be your God and for you to be his people. His promise is to be the strength of your heart and your portion forever. Mental and spiritual suffering. What about those who suffer from the condition a feeling like God has turned his face from them? What about when God's providence no longer happily smiles upon your daily life and leaves you in a state of seeming abandon and hopelessness? What about when your own sin seems to have brought you to a place of complete poverty? Total bankruptcy, feeling alone, afflicted. What about when you cry out to him and he does not seem to answer? What about when you're where Asaph was in Psalm 77? Look at Psalm 77 briefly. Keep your hands in Romans 8. What about when you are where he is when he says this? Asaph, in frustration, I cry aloud to God. Aloud to God and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Why? He's thinking about the past when things were good. Now they're not. I moan. My spirit faints. I won't be comforted. I am frustrated with you, God. Where have you gone? You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the, light, in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? You see, it's here. It's when you get to this point where Asaph is, prior to when he goes on, he goes on to then talk about who the Lord is. I remember who he is. 
But it's here where Asaph is at that point, where Satan, where Satan, or some ex- exceedingly unhelpful legalistic Christian friend comes to you and accuses you. It's here where Satan says, you know what, you're not a Christian. You're not a Christian. Look at your life. You're surely not a believer. You never really trusted Jesus. You never really loved God. You were never really one of his. All those past memories that you have, those are an illusion. They're not real. You were faking. The truth is that your father has abandoned you and has left you and he's going to punish you for your fears and your failures and your sin. See, this is where we must remember, as Asaph did, who our God is, that he's holy and almighty and sovereign, a redeemer and shepherd of his people. We must remember that Jesus told us what? When you're bankrupt, when you recognize your poverty of spirit, then I've abandoned you. No, what did Jesus say? Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We must remember that God said, a bruised reed I will not break, and a smoldering wick I will not snuff out. This is where we speak back to Satan, and we say to him, you know what, Satan? Christ died for sinners God justifies the ungodly. If God would kill his son for me as an enemy, how much more, now that I'm a friend, will he save me? I am God's child. He has a purpose for me, as he did for Israel, a purpose not to harm me, but to prosper me. He purposes my good, and his purposes cannot be thwarted. This is what Paul knows here in Romans 8. He knows how loving our heavenly dad is. That's all an introduction to the text. Look here at chapter 8, verse 16, how loving our heavenly dad is. Chapter 8, I'll start in verse 16. I want you to get a a bearing for what follows by way of promise. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. We have been adopted as children of the Father. We can call him Dad. This adoption, this access to the Father as our Dad in Christ, is the source of all our blessings promised us in the New Testament. In fact, it's probably the crowning blessing of all the other blessings that the holy, almighty God of the universe is your dad because of Jesus. The holy God of the universe is your father. You hear that? Just let that sink in. He's your dad. Since this is the case, we're co-heirs with Christ, his son, in all things. And heirs of God, provided we suffer with him, with Christ, in order that we may also be glorified with him. 
See, here's the promise of being a son to the Father. We get him. We get glory. We are raised in glory with Jesus as our bodies put on immortality and we are made like unto him. However, however, the road to glory is paved with suffering. His path, his path was suffering and he promised that ours would be as well. This is what Paul's saying here. You will receive glory as children of the Father, but for now, but for now, you will suffer. And don't fear, don't worry. Look at Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth being compared or comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. If you put them on a scale, they have no weight, these sufferings, compared to the glory that's coming. And the creation, in fact, it's so great, great that the creation is groaning, waiting for that day. Look at verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Go down to verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but you as God's children are groaning. Look at verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly await for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So Paul goes on to say that we wait patiently in hope for that day, knowing that that day is guaranteed to us. But for now, we suffer. And you may say, you know what? It is so hard, so hard to endure and to have hope in this suffering. So hard. And Paul provides really one, really one great overarching comfort in this passage. Paul provides really one great overarching comfort in this passage. And it's this. I mean, it has various aspects, but this is it. Your invincibly loving Father has adopted you. Your invincibly loving Father has adopted you and has an eternal purpose from you that no one can stop. No one. Not the world, not the flesh, not the devil. No one. Now the aspects of that I hope are several and I'm gonna talk about two of those aspects. The first one is in verse 26. Look there. The Holy Spirit helps God's children in weakness. The Holy Spirit helps God's children in their weakness. Verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Paul starts off with this word likewise, and Paul's making a connection to what precedes in this passage. He's connecting this thought that the Spirit helps us in our weakness with what comes before this. And what comes before? That what comes before is that we're God's children. His Spirit's indwelt us. He's testified to us that we're His children. And as such, has given us the guarantee of future glory. And just as the Spirit has testified to our hearts that we are children and has given us the hope of glory by giving us the first fruits of the Spirit, the guarantee it's ours, that's what the first fruits is, just as that is true, He also helps us in our weakness. Spirit does that and He helps you. He indwells you and testifies to your heart that you are a child of God, that glory is certainly yours, that it's coming. And He helps you in your weakness. Weakness. Why? Because he's told you these things, but he knows you're going to suffer, doesn't he? And he knows you're weak, and he knows you need help. 
and so he helps you because you're his child. And there's two words here, this word help. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. This word help is the same word um, that is used uh, by, Mar- by Martha when, he goes to, when she goes to Jesus. Martha goes to Jesus and says what? I want you to get Mary to what? Help me, right? I'm trying to serve all these people. Mary's just sitting there, you know, hanging out, worshiping you. I really want her to come help me bear this load. And that's the same word. And what's picked up here is that what Paul is saying is, is that the Holy Spirit is helping you in your weakness. He is bearing your load with you. He's sharing in it with you. You're not alone in it. He's helping you. And he's helping you in your weakness. What does it mean by weakness? It's not the idea of sin per se. How do I say that? Because, why do I say that? Because Jesus was taking on this weakness. He took on this weakness. This weakness of human frailty that is a consequence of sin for all humanity. We're weak. We're ignorant human beings. The condition of being weak in itself is not sin. However, weakness does make it very difficult, exceedingly difficult in our fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil as they try to allure us into sin and despair and hopelessness and idolatry, isn't it? And Paul goes on to explain how the Spirit specifically helps us in our weakness. Look what he says. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. Do not know what to pray for as we ought. The content of the prayer is what he's talking about here. He's not saying you don't know how to pray in the sense that you don't know how to say, Father, you know, in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus has given you a model for prayer. He's not saying you don't know how to pray. He's not saying you don't know what to pray for. You're in the midst of suffering. You're in the midst of a trial, and you don't know what is you ought to ask for. In other words, there's something you ought to be asking for. What is it? God's will. What is God's will? That you endure that trial? Or is God's will that you get relief from that trial? You don't know. We don't know, do we? God's will may be that we endure it, and that's what we ought to be praying for. Or God's will may be that we're relieved from it, and that's what we ought to be praying for. But we don't know what God's will is in that trial. And so the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. And we don't know what ought, we ought to pray for. Look what he goes on and says. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts, that's the Father, knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Notice what he says. We do not know. We don't know. I am nearsighted and blind. I'm an ignorant human. I need help even in prayer, maybe especially in prayer. And this is, there's a way I ought to pray, and I don't know what it is. When you are so distressed and anguished and weak and bankrupt in and of yourself that you are without resource, without words, without answers, without understanding, and have nothing left but need, God does not ignore your prayers. God does not leave you there to carry the load by yourself. God helps you when you are weak. The Spirit intercedes for you with groaning too deep for words. As the creation groaned and you were groaning, the Spirit is groaning. All of this groaning has one end, one purpose, God's will to be done and God's children to be resurrected to glory. 
Hear that? The groaning is too deep for words. Hear that phrase, too deep for words? Really in the Greek, the, the word can be translated one of two ways. It can be translated wordless groanings, because there's no words attached at all, it's just wordless groanings, or it can be kind of the idea of ineffable groanings, or, in, or groanings that are inarticulate. There's no actual words being formed, but there's some sort of sound. Most likely, the Greek word means wordless groanings. However, it could mean some sort of inarticulate sounds that are being made, not by the Spirit, but by you, as the Spirit's praying in you or interceding in you. However, there are some in Pentecostal circles who attempt to claim that this is speaking in tongues. And you know what? I don't even have time to provide that nonsense a thorough reply. Let me just say this. First of all, tongues are languages that can be interpreted, that can be understood. They are not, they are not groanings that are inarticulate. Second, this word most likely means wordless, not mumbling without understanding. Just as the creation groans, creation's groans are not actual sounds, so the spirits are probably not either. The groaning here is most likely the spirit taking the inarticulate longings of our hearts for the will of God and articulating them in our hearts in a manner that makes them clear prayer requests before the Father. Do you understand that? In other words, Paul is saying an aspect of your comfort is that the Spirit is indwelling you and he is taking the longing of your new heart to see God's will done and he is bringing those prayers to the Father and your Father searches hearts and when he does, he knows the mind of the Spirit and the Spirit intercedes for us according to the will of God and our prayers are heard, our longings are heard and they are answered. Even when we are in a mess and don't know what to pray for, even when the words we speak are contrary to God's will, God's Spirit joins with the longing of our hearts for God's will, and he brings before God prayers in accordance with God's will, which is why Paul can say that God gives us abundantly more than all we ask or think. Why? Because the Spirit knows what to ask and think, doesn't he? And he asks for it, and God gives it. Because the Spirit is God, and God cannot, God cannot reject the prayers of his Spirit. What is a greater encouragement to prayer than to know that the Spirit is helping you bring a prayer request before God according to his will? And to know that the Son, the Son of God is the right hand of the Father interceding for you. John Murray, the great 20th century theologian, said it this way, Christ is in the throne room of God interceding for us, and the Spirit is in the theater of our hearts interceding for us. The Spirit intercedes for you. He joins with the longings of your regenerated heart to have God answer according to his will and he prays with you for God's will and God's will is certainly accomplished. This means that God's will is guaranteed in your life. It should comfort you. If you know the character of your father, you'll be comforted to know that his will is guaranteed to happen in your life because the Spirit is praying for it. It cannot be otherwise, and your father is good. He is good. Even an earthly father who's evil knows how to give good gifts to his children. How much more our heavenly father who is good.
but what is God's, what is God's will for my life? If what's happening to me now is his will, then why do I want it? And this leads to the second aspect of the comfort we have in being children of the Father who's for us and whose love is invincible. Look at um, verse 28. All things work together for for good for God's children. All things work together for good for God's children. Look at verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to God. To his purpose. Paul just said something in verse 26. He said this, for we do not know. We do not know what to pray. We don't know God's will for our lives as weak creatures. We do not know what to pray. However, he also says there's something we do know. While we don't know God's will for us at this point, we don't know what to ask for. We don't know whether to ask for endurance or relief. Here's what we do know. We do know God is working for our good. Hear that? We don't know what to ask for, but we do know God is working for our good. We know something. He's a good father, and he works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I want to take that in three parts briefly. First, who is he working all things together for good for? Who is he working all things together for good for? There's two descriptors that he gives here. Look at it. The first one is actually front-loaded in the verse, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Two descriptions. Those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. This is talking about Christians. He's emphasizing both sides of the equation. God has chosen us according to his purpose and called us out to save us, and we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. We must remember that we love him and that to love him is not always to have some warm, fuzzy feeling toward him. In the midst of suffering, you often lack that love and feeling, don't you, for God. But Jesus says that your love for God is demonstrated in your keeping his commandments, not in your feelings. When we love him, we move forward in obedience even when we don't feel like it. Hear that? We move forward in obedience even when we don't feel like it. If you were God's, then he is working all things together for your good. God is not working all things together for the good of all men. Let's be clear. In fact, just the opposite. If you're an unbeliever, I want you to hear this. If you're an unbeliever in here, you need to be clear. You need to know that God is showing you kindness to lead you to repentance. And as you continue to reject him, you are storing up wrath for yourself for the day of judgment. Unbelievers, God is working all things together, not for your good, but for your condemnation. And so you need to repent. And you need to trust him. You need to know he's your only hope. And receive good from his hand. And if you do know him, you know he's your father and he works for the good of his children. Second, what's included in all things? What's included in all things? Well, I don't want to be presumptuous in my interpretation of Scripture, but I would say all things, right, would be included in all things. I'm going to go out on a limb here. All things. Your triumphs and your blessings, your sufferings, and your sins 
I want you to hear this part. Perhaps most of all, your sins. God is working together for your good. Why? Because your sin is what he's redeeming you from. There's nothing that's excluded. Your sin is what God is working in to show you your need, to humble you, to turn you to Christ, to cling to him, to know you have no hope beside him, to worship him alone. Nothing is excluded from all things. Third, what is meant for good? What does he mean by for good? He's working all things together for good. For those of us who are Christians, what is meant by good? By good, Paul does not mean you will receive some kind of relief or your promise to experience some benefit here in this life. It's not what he means. He doesn't mean that at the end of this particular trial, you'll get to it, you'll have some greater blessing as a result of it, and you'll look back and go, that was worth it, this greater blessing I now have. Like Job, all of us think we're going to have that scenario where his kids are wiped out and his wealth is wiped out, and God comes to him, shows him who he is, never tells him why, just says, look at who I am, Job, trust me. Job repents, trusts God, and what happens? God restores all that back to him, then some. People say, oh, that's what's going to happen. It's going to happen to me. That's, that's what he must mean by for my good. No, it isn't. God is working all things together for the good of his ultimate son, Jesus Christ, and he went all the way to the cross and died, didn't he? Or Peter or Paul, who suffered unto death with him. God is working all things for your good, and by your good, he means, by your good, he means not relief. He means that you're going to accomplish his purpose. I'm going to get into his purpose in a second, but I want you to hear this because I think the key is we want our Father to give us relief, not endurance, when relief might not be what's good for us. We might think it's good for us, but God may say what's good for you is for me to leave you in this current suffering the rest of your life. That's hard to believe. It's hard to hold on to. That's hard to trust God in the midst of, isn't it? But he's about our good, and our good is his purpose. And what's his purpose? What's his good for us? This is where we come to what's called the golden chain, or the ordo salutis is what theologians call it, the order of salvation. Paul's going to tell us what our good is. Look at verse 29. He's called us according to his purpose. Look, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined for what? To be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, theologians use these verses typically to talk about how God has sovereignly elect us, elected us and brought about our salvation. And this is important, and it's glorious, and it's the key to understanding everything Paul is doing here pastorally. But I do not want to get so caught up in the doctrine of how what comes first, election, calling, justification, that we miss the pastoral implication that Paul is getting at here. He's making a point about the goodness of your father and the promise you have as his children that I don't want to miss. Here's what it is. Your Father's purpose is your good. And He's eternally, eternally committed to bringing about your good. He is so completely and absolutely committed to your good that He has been eternally 
committed to your good. For eternity past, he was for you, and he loved you, and he was committed to your good. He continues to be committed to your good, and he will, for eternity future, be committed to your good. So what is your good, and how does Paul show it? He says this, those whom God foreknew, he predestined. What does he mean by foreknew? He's not speaking about God looking down the corridors of time and seeing all your wise and glorious choices so that he can choose you. It's not what he's talking about here. How does that comfort you in the midst of your suffering, particularly when you are rejecting him at that moment? When the devil's accusing you, how does it comfort you to say, well, God looked down the corridors of time and saw your faith, right? Be comforted. And Satan says, well, what he looked down the corridors of time and saw in you was no faith at all. Right? Look at you. You're a mess. That's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about foreknowledge here. God foreknew not your free choices. He foreknew people. He foreknew you. You hear that? He foreknew his children. Look what he says. For those whom God foreknew. Not what God foreknew is coming. Those whom. The people God foreknew. He predestined. All of them. If he foreknew them, he also predestined them, called them, justified them, and will glorify them. Unfailingly. What does he mean by foreknow then? He is talking about God's covenantal love, just as God said to Israel, out of all the nations of the earth, I have known you. What does that mean? Does that mean God didn't know the other nations? Obviously he knew them, right? He's talking about a special kind of love, a kind of knowing. It's a covenantal love. What he's saying is that God has set his covenantal love upon you. God covenanted to be God to you and for you to be his people before the world began. He covenanted to adopt you as his son. Do you hear that? Do you hear what Paul's getting at? God set his love on you in eternity past. God knew you would be a sinner. He knew you would flee from him and reject him. Yet he set his covenantal love upon you. He pursued you like the prodigal you are. He sought you and threw his arms around you. And through his gracious electing love, he works all things to bring about his good purpose for you. And everyone upon whom he set his love, he also predestined. And he chose them for a destination. What's the destination? He predestined them to what? To be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Do you know what this mean? means? God set his love on you and predestined you to be like Jesus so that Jesus would be the firstborn, which speaks of his preeminence, preeminence his supremacy. In one glorious phrase, Paul has summed up the whole of God's purpose. Hear it? One phrase, the whole of God's purpose is God's good for you. You will be like Jesus, and Jesus will be supreme. Jesus will be preeminent. Do you hear that? And you'll be like him. That's God's good for you. That's what God purposed in eternity past to do for you. And Paul goes on, and those whom he predestined, he called. He used the preaching of the word. He worked in their hearts to cause them to respond to it. He called, and those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. 
Look what it says there. It speaks about glorification. That's what's to come. Notice that? Provided we suffer with him in verse 17, in order that we may also be glorified with him, that glory is future. It's coming. After we walk down the road of suffering, that glory that the creation is longing for the sons of God to be revealed so it can see, so it can share in, that glory is future. And yet Paul talks about it here in the aorist tense, like it's a past tense. It's already happened in the way Paul speaks about it. Paul is saying that he is so absolutely certain that God, the Father's goodwill and purpose for your life can't be overthrown. So absolutely certain that he can speak about your glory in the past tense. Hear that? You're a child of God, and if a child, an heir, an heir of God, a co-heir with Christ, provided you suffer with him and also the, in order that you may also be glorified with him. But don't fear for the suffering of this present time is not worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed in us. You have the first fruits of the Spirit as a guarantee that the full benefits of adoption will be revealed to you. The Spirit will help you in the meantime. He will pray and make certain the Father's will is done in your life. And the Father will answer his prayers. And all things will work together for your good because the Father set his covenantal love upon you before the foundation of the world. And the Father predestined you to be made like his Son so that his Son would be preeminent. And the Father's will and purpose is such an inviolable guarantee that it is good as done. Glory is yours, to which all God's people said, amen. No matter what you suffer, no matter what your sin, no matter what the world, the flesh, or the devil attempt to do to thwart God's good purpose for your life, you can trust that they will completely fail. For your Father is unfailing, and his love is invincible. Hear Paul's crescendo. Listen to what he comes to after he tells you about your future glory, about your hope, about what it means that you're a child and that God is praying for you and that God is working for you and that God will bring you to his ultimate good for you, which is to be like his son so that his son might be preeminent. Listen to how he ends. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Certainly not Satan, the world, or the flesh, or the devil, right? None of it. They can't bring a charge against you. It is God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, I am certain, I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Let me pray. Lord, we are thankful for your word and its truth. We are thankful 
that you are a Father who loved us from before you ever created us, that you set your covenantal love upon us, that you predestined us to be conformed to the image of your Son, that he might be preeminent, that you called us and that you justified us, forgiving us our sins and declaring us righteous, and that you, you glorified us. You will give us the glory that you have guaranteed to give to your children because in Christ we are heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him that we may also be glorified with him. So Lord, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our trials, in the midst of tribulations, in the midst of Satan accusing us a time and time again of the world allure, allure trying to capture us of our flesh, our sin, wanting to tear us apart and reject you, we are reminded that if God is for us, who can be against us? Will he who gave us his own son, not with him, also graciously give us all things? Who is to bring a charge against God, God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he has risen at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. What can separate us from the love of God? Nothing can. Nothing in all creation can separate us from your love in Christ Jesus our Lord. For that we are thankful. We pray that we would reflect on you, our holy, gracious, loving Father, and the fact that no one, no one can defeat your love for us and your purpose in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.